Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. The devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, You'll command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. So I preached on this text uh, last year. And typically I wouldn't reuse a sermon after, I, after just a year. But first of all, what does the word typically even mean anymore? Uh, it's starting to sound outdated like forthwith and wherefore. The world has little place for words like typically and normally. Uh, but the other th- reason is, is I preached this sermon as part of our collaborative worship services on Zoom. It was unlike others I had done in that I found myself writing and, and then filming this little play uh, that I think a lot of people found confusing. Uh, but given that those meditations were sort of constricted to 10 minutes, And here, I can drag things out for a full 20. Uh, I have a chance to sort of set things up a little better. Because the version we're most probably familiar with in terms of Jesus' temptations, we're most familiar with Matthew's account. And that's because Matthew puts the temptations in an order that makes sort of immediate sense. Right, there's sort of this progression. Oh, turn stones to bread, okay? Oh, here's a little bigger one. Uh, see if the angels will protect you. Okay, that's a big deal. Ooh, kingdoms of the world. That's, that's the biggest one. So you see the devil is sort of ramping things up. That's for all the marbles. But as we just heard, uh, Luke puts this one for all the marbles, puts that second. The third temptation is where Jesus, you know, the devil invites Jesus to jump. You know, it's this sort of trust fall of sorts. So the question is, why would Luke do that? I mean, the simple answer might be, well, maybe he just remembered the story differently. Eh. So the assumption would be like, oh, one got it right, one got it wrong. But uh, that's not really the way the Gospels work. Uh, I have a professor in seminary say, you know, we, we might have preferred the Gospel writers to be more, like, have some journalistic uh, objectives where they... 
They always get the chronology right, you know, exactly the way it happened. But that's not the way the gospel writers wrote. They feel free to move events around if it helps them make their point. So, for example, John has Jesus cleansing the temple right near the beginning of his ministry, whereas the other ones have Jesus doing it, you know, near just uh, in, during Passion Week. Uh, some people try to reconcile it by saying, well, he must have done it twice. Well, that might, you might be able to see that working there, but the idea that that's working here is sort of ridiculous, that Jesus went the, was tempted twice in the wilderness and one time the devil did it disorder and the other time he did this order. No. Um, I don't find that particularly uh, compelling. But I, do, I suspect that Luke does order it this way for a reason, and that's where this play comes in. I try to illustrate it with a video. Uh, when it begins, the devil and his demon assistant, uh, Mixie, have driven into the wilderness, aka a subdivision under construction, uh, to find Jesus. And it'll show the devil spotting Jesus in the distance. You see that in the video? Uh, what it doesn't show is the devil tempting Satan, or the devil tempting Jesus to turn stones into bread, or the temptation to bow to Satan in order to obtain the kingdoms of this world. In fact, what happens in the video is you just, he spots Jesus. In the next scene, it cuts, and you'll see Jesus getting into the SUV that, that Satan was driving or Mixie was driving for Satan. All right, so why would Jesus get into Satan's SUV? First reason is, it was freezing that day, and I was, there was no way I was gonna be able to film that thing outside without killing myself in the process. Uh, so what you have to imagine in order for this thing to work is that Satan has made this offer for the kingdoms of the world, Jesus has refused, and then somehow the devil convinces Jesus to get in the car and talk about it. Uh, but, okay, so that helps set that up. But the more important question, the, the big question we're looking for is, you know, what, what would it mean for Jesus to have bowed to the devil? What would it have meant for uh, the devil to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world? Well, I, I think what the devil means uh, is really sort of illustrated right now in Ukraine. Right? Because over the years, Putin has amassed incredible wealth. He's taken control of Russian media, so he dictates the story that gets put out. He's eliminated dissent, and he's built up the military. Right? I mean, these are sort of the spiritual disciplines of Satanism. Right? You do these things, you can take the kingdoms of the world. You just march right in. But Jesus refuses that offer. And it's not because he's uninterested in the kingdoms of this world. That's precisely what he came, he came to establish the kingdom of God in this world. And so what this video is about is trying to, what are the implications of Jesus' choice? And it's sort of like, it's the story of the devil starting to get a, putting two and two together and understand the implications of Jesus' choice to not bow to Satan. Hey, podcast listeners, you should be able to follow the story just with the audio, but it's not as cool. If you'd like to see the video, there is a link in the episode description.
is my man! <laughs> Jesus, this is Mixelflix. I call me Mixy. Now that we're gonna be partners, Mixy and the Messiah overthrowing enemies, expanding territory, amassing power. Mixy, hey. Mixy, shut ah. your hellhole, would you? Sorry, boss, just excited. Always thought the spiritual realm should team up. We're not ah. teaming up. What? Why? Aren't you the Messiah? Anointed heir to the throne of David? The one to establish rule over the nations? If you want to rule the world, buddy, you want this dude on your side, am I right? He's right, you know. I mean, you're not the first person with imperial ambition. <laughs> you won't be the last. Not by a long shot. And as prince of this world, you might think I'd have a problem with that. But I don't. In fact, I'm always willing to help. Bow to me, and I will unleash all the power of hell for your cause. Is it people? Is it the idea of ruling over these mortals? Because if so, I get it. They're annoying. They're like bugs. Totally get it. No, no. That's not it. Well, then, what is it? I think it's me. I think he doesn't like the way I do business. I think he doesn't want me to give it to him because he wants to take it. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> you know, I thought I was going to enjoy this little trip. This being God forsaken wilderness and all. <laughs> but no, let's get out of here. I think it's time to go. You heard him. Out. Oh, no. You're coming, too. Where? The city. Some place with a view. Might help him get a little bit of perspective. Should I go push him off? Just, just hold on a second. It's a long way down, isn't it? You know, Mixie here was, was just about to push you off. <laughs> Does that sound like me? No. Well, sort of. Actually, yeah, yeah, it sounds like you. Because he rejected my offer? Because he made some veiled threat to take me on? I was just thinking it'd be fun. But yeah, because of that. No. Why not? Because it'd be quick. Someone who threatens me does not get off that easy. It's not that I won't rip their life away from them, but I'm gonna draw it out. I'm gonna rip away everything they hold dear first. I'm gonna make it excruciating, humiliating. They take their last breath knowing that only those who wield the power of violence and death lay claim to the kingdoms of this world. I take it all back. That sounds like you. <laughs> it's what I do. So, uh, if we're not here to push him off, uh, why are we here? 
so he can jump. What? Yeah. The angels are going to catch him. That's what it says, right? Let's find out if that's true. Do it, do it, do it, do it. No, seriously. I mean, think about the choice you've made. The choice to take me on. Your refusal to establish your kingdom armed with weapons of hell? <laughs> You'll be defenseless. Wouldn't it be nice to be sure Lord's gonna come through for you? Wouldn't those angels offer some reassurance before you launch into some fool's errand? You really think angels gonna show up? No idea. But if they didn't, would that be that bad? Depends if dead is bad. It's not in this case. <laughs> no, not in this case. Dead would be an escape. You'd have saved yourself from the hell I have planned for you. I mean, what do you have to lose? So, um, you know, the temptation makes sense. If Jesus isn't going to establish the kingdom of God using the means of violence, if, in other words, if Jesus is going to reject the very tools that every empire has relied on, he might want some reassurance that things are going to turn out okay. And like the devil said, what, 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 if, what if God doesn't come through for you? What's the worst thing that could happen? You would end up dead. And there are fates worse than death. But Jesus doesn't jump. He doesn't seek reassurance that God will intervene. Not because he doesn't believe the devil will, in fact, turn his wrath against him. You know, two years later, he's openly declaring to the disciples that all hell is going to break loose. Peter will try to rebuke him for talking that way. But Jesus hears the devil in his voice. Here's the devil playing on the anxiety provoked by impending doom. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Nothing about the way Jesus talks about this time suggests he anticipates being caught. He's not expecting to be rescued from what the powers of hell have planned for him. In Luke's gospel, there's a moment when Jesus' ministry sort of makes this turn. Uh, it's, it's like Jesus sort of takes on a greater intensity. Jesus, writes Luke in chapter 9, sets his face toward Jerusalem. It is as if Jesus has seen the satellite photos of convoys moving in from hell into Jerusalem. And it's clear that there is where the, the offensive will be launched. Rather than fleeing, Jesus becomes determined to meet it head on. He sets his face toward it. In our reading, the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and suggests Jesus seek this intervention. Later in chapter 2, He'll be in the, in the garden, and the question of an intervention is, becomes, uh, uh, comes to the forefront there, because his betrayer is on his way. 
And this time, the devil's question is really Jesus' own. Will there be an intervention? Jesus depicts the hell that he's going to face as this cup that he has to drink. And he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But here, as in the wilderness, he resolves to trust because his prayer concludes, yet not my will, but yours be done. So then the betrayer comes and identifies Jesus with, to his captors with this, a kiss. And that's the signal that brings in this confrontation. And, and in that confrontation, you may remember that the disciple cuts off the ear of the high, uh, the high priest. It's like one last opportunity to take up the devil on his offer. One last opportunity to form an alliance with the devil. You know, take with that sword. To stop this free fall and establish this kingdom the old-fashioned way. With violence. Instead, he heals the priest and says, This is your hour and the power of darkness. And so it begins. The disciples at that point finally clue into what Jesus has been telling them. And they, just, they come to the conclusion this is all going terribly wrong. They want no part of it. They leave Jesus to face it all alone. Later, of course, Peter tries to remedy this and fails. Right, as Jesus is undergoing this sort of sham trial before the religious leaders, one of them, one of whom just regained an ear, Peter's outside swearing to everyone he never knew him. You know, at that time in history, no civilization wielded the power of hell like Rome, Israel's oppressor. But ironically, it's the Roman authorities that try to make an angel-like intervention. A mob of Jesus' own people insists that he be pushed off the ledge and that nothing break his fall. So, bloody and naked and on public display, Jesus becomes reduced to the butt of jokes. They mock his powerlessness. After all, what can he do but feel pain and struggle for breath? Turns out he's got enough breath to say a few things. You have to wonder, what, 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 what will he say? How will he return fire? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, we might mistake this for Jesus just being nice and fail to see just how explosive, how explosive these words are, explosive enough to blow up this whole scene. They don't know what they're doing, and you do? Are you suggesting that this isn't all just being done to you? That this is your doing? This isn't the, the shredding of your plans, and the, but it's instead the implementation of your plan. That is precisely how he sees it. And that is precisely how it is. I think we've all been moved by the acts of resistance shown by the uh, Ukrainian people. All the myriad of ways they are demonstrating their allegiance to their country. The season of Lent is a reminder 
The aggression and violence they face is really just one expression of forces that have been around much, much longer. Forces that are not bound to a geographic border. They are forces that threaten anyone whose allegiance is to a kingdom that does not operate by the rules of this world. A kingdom that plays on your fear, your shame, and your anger. Now, that might seem rather dramatic. The situation the Ukrainians are facing is very different from our own. We might not feel as though there are tyrants trying to dictate our lives, but we might want to ask ourselves, why are we always so busy? Who's the tyrant there? And why might, may we, while we may not find ourselves in combat, we do find ourselves feeling defensive. And we find so many reasons to complain about people. No one may be trying to take our land, but that doesn't make us, doesn't make it easy to be generous. Lent is a season in which we see these things as they are. There are ways in which we need to declare our allegiance, taking time to rest, to pray, to give. These are all small acts of resistance. They not, may not be dramatic, but they matter. And you can feel that when you try to do them. They seem strangely difficult for being such little things. But the good news is you do not undertake your resistance alone. Resistance is undertaken with Jesus. The one who is so determined to declare victory for the kingdom is so determined to make you a part of that kingdom. He has set his face toward it. And once he has set his face towards something, nothing can stand in his way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.